Seated. Well, good morning. We are continuing in the book of Judges. Hopefully you grab those, one of those Bibles there on the floor, open it up on your phone. Uh, we'll be mostly in Judges chapter 14. Last week we said that Samson is the final judge of the book of Judges. He is number 12, and he's the worst of the worst. We see this downward spiral throughout the book of Judges where both the judges that are delivering Israel and Israel themselves are becoming more and more of idol worshipers, and the behavior that comes out of that becomes more and more atrocious. Uh, last week, uh, we were saying that in Judges 13, is really up to that point in Judges, it's the most hopeless moment, and it's the most hope-filled moment. It's hopeless because not only are they experiencing the oppression of the Philistines, but Israel's not even crying out. This is the one time in the book of Judges where they're not asking God for a deliverer. They've just accepted the Philistine oppression as the new normal, and they're not even interested in God delivering them from that uh, oppression. Uh, it's full of hope because God still sends a deliverer. And so we saw this supernatural uh, bringing forth from a dead, barren womb this new baby, and this new baby was Samson. And Samson was going to be set apart for the holy purposes of God. So in that sense, there was a great deal of hope. Now, at the end of chapter 13, you see a quick description of, of Sam, Samson being born. So, Judges 13, 24, the woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. So, that's all we know about his childhood, right there, that phrase, young man grew, Lord blessed him. And Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Ashtaoth. So, he grows up, and then the Holy Spirit of God is stirring him. Now, that word translated stir is an interesting Hebrew word that's usually translated troubled. And it's usually not a positive word. Here's some examples where that, 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 that uh, Hebrew word pa'am uh, is used. There, Genesis 41.8, this is describing the Pharaoh in the days of Joseph. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. That's that word. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them in his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them. So he's waking up and he's, he's troubled over these dreams. Psalm 77, 4 uses the word, You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Right? Not a positive word. It usually does have something to do with nighttime, can't sleep, that kind of thing. Um, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2.3, the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So it's interesting that here in Judges, it says that the Holy Spirit is troubling Samson, stirring him up, agitating him. Uh, and we begin to see in chapter 14 what he's, God is stirring him up uh, to do. Now, Judges 14, so hopefully you've opened up in, in your Bibles there. Uh, Judges 14, first few verses, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. 
Now, this phrase, right in my eyes, that is something that you see throughout the book of Judges that describes Israel, that they're doing what's right in their own eyes. So Samson becomes sort of the poster boy for what does it look like if you take this to the nth degree, living whatever is right in your own eyes. And there's so much wrong, even in these first few verses with what's going on here. So one is, Samson wants to marry a Philistine. And there's clear teaching in the Mosaic Law, first five books of the Bible, right? He's got the first six books of the Bible. So he's, he knows what Moses said about marrying someone outside of Israel. So I'll give you one example. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So it becomes very clear that what's being prohibited is not interracial marriage, but interfaith marriage. Moses is, in fact, married to someone of another race, right? But she's on board in terms of the faith. And so God makes it very clear through the Mosaic Law that they are to be marrying people inside of Israel so that they are worshiping the one true God. If you step outside of worshiping the one true God and marry someone that's worshiping another God, then the wheels come off. And this is There's continuity with this between Old and New Testament. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. So you see the same kind of a trajectory where Paul's like, don't enter into binding relationships, right? He's not saying, don't talk to anyone who's not a Christian, right? That's, that, that's, that's definitely not what he's saying. But he is saying, don't get into a binding relationship, which could be a business relationship. It also definitely includes marriage, right? So that's, that's, a, that's a continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. And Samson doesn't, either doesn't know the, the Word of God and what it says about that, or he just doesn't care. And then on top of that, he doesn't obey his parents, right? Exodus twenty twelve. this is one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, he doesn't seem to know that or doesn't care, right? The, the, the parents are like, don't do this. Uh, they're kind of generally appealing to the Word of God. They don't mention it. I wish they would. That'd be, that'd be points in their favor. Uh, but they're like, hey, don't, don't go to the uncircumcised Philistine. So Samson seems unfazed, right? All he can think about is what's right in his eyes. She's right in my eyes, right? And again, this is repeated, this phrase, over and over and over in Judges. Judges 17, 6 and 21, 25 in fact, are the exact same verse. Do you think that's interesting? That the writer would, would waste ink on that, saying this verse twice. I think it must be important, right? It's the same verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone, right? This was ubiquitous throughout the culture. People had left the following of God's word, God's commands, God's ways, and they were just kind of going with what they thought and what they felt was the right thing to do. Now, what should they be doing? They should be doing what's right in God's eyes. 
And this is over and over in Judges as well, that they were doing what was wrong in God's eyes instead of what was right in God's eyes. Uh, One description of that kind of behavior is is King David, 1 Kings 15, 4 and 5. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So David is commended for doing what is right, not in his own eyes, but what is right in the eyes of God. It lets us know, and I said this earlier in the series, but I'll say it again, that right and wrong come from God, like His character. He didn't just come up with some kind of just random right and wrong and just throw it out at human beings and say, try that, right? I'm going to torture you with these rules and regulations, right? They actually come out of his character, right? He's a truth teller. That's why it's wrong to lie, right? He's a giver, not a, a, a taker. That's why it's wrong to steal. Like the, the character of God is the place from which right and wrong come from. And because he's creator and sustainer of the universe, those things actually contribute to your good, They contribute to human flourishing, right? He created us. He created the world. And so if he says, this is the way, now walk in it, it's going to be good for us. I told you guys last week, I I was asked to come to a sixth grade class and uh, be the expert on Christianity. And they just pummeled me with questions for an hour. And one of the questions was, is there something you wish you could do that you can't do because of your religion? And I said, no. No. That doesn't mean I don't struggle here or there with wanting or not wanting to do things that I know is in God's Word. Absolutely, I struggle. But, but I absolutely believe that what God has told me is for my good. It's absolutely for my good. And because of that, you know, Israel should be looking at this Word and saying, this is, this is for my flourishing. Um, some of you memorize this Uh, in uh, discipleship groups, Psalm 1, 1 through 3, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That sounds so strange to us. Delight? Yeah, delight. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the picture is someone who's fully embracing the Word of God in such a way that they're flourishing like a tree that's right next to a water source. So instead of that kind of living, Samson and the rest of Israel are doing what's right in their own mind, right? And, that, and that's probably a combination of thoughts and feelings. These usually work in concert. The things that we desire, that, that we want, we somehow kind of... Uh, twist our thoughts around that thing, and we, we convince ourselves that this thing is right. Uh, this is not all bad, right? That thoughts and feelings work in concert. Uh, I can tell you that it is right for you to lay down your life for others. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. And you can kind of you know, put a little tick mark next to that. I agree with that. But I could also tell you an inspiring story about Mother Teresa or Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and, and, and that would cause your, your emotions to then rally around that thought 
that you should lay down your life for others. And it would actually give some power to uh, that concept. So it's not all bad, but it can be bad. It can be bad. We, there's a lot of talk about confirmation bias, right? Well, that, that's what's going on there, right? We, we desire something. We want something to be right. And then somehow we, we convince ourselves in our minds that that thing is objectively right because really we just want it. We just want it to be true. And so we think that it's objectively true. This is the ethos of our current culture. Let's just be honest. If you want it, if you feel it, if you desire it, it must be true. It must be good. Um, this is true among both conservatives and progressives. I think sometimes people think, think about the other group doing this, you know, whatever your group is, you think about the other group, and uh, it's ubiquitous. It's throughout the culture, no matter which side you kind of identify with. Uh, Tony Campolo in his book, <laughs> I love this title, Is Jesus a Democrat or a Republican? Uh, he says, Democrats are the party of lust. Republicans are the party of greed. These are, these are both ways to do what's right in your own eyes. When Democrats are at their worst, they're seeking to deconstruct sexual, biblical sexual ethics, right? throwing off all sexual restraint, or at least almost all. They're redefining marriage. They're giving license to have sex with whoever you want. They're making sure that abortion on demand is available so that if there are consequences from throwing off restraint, we can mitigate those consequences. Even going so far as deconstructing basic understanding of human beings, being male and female. Republicans at their worst, conservative types, are the, at their worst when they're about the almighty dollar and nothing else. Right? Willing to exploit vulnerable populations or at least refuse to help them. Destroy the environment in the name of creating wealth. Create systems that only benefit the top few percent, resulting in selfishness over and against fellow citizens and over and against other countries. They end up gaining the world and losing their souls. These are just different ways of doing what's right in your own eyes. And both sides feel like they're objectively right. And yet, there's, there, there's an objective truth <laughs> that's God, like literally the person of God that speaks into that mess and brings truth. Samson seems captive to both lust and greed. So I don't know who he'd vote for. I, I think he'd have a problem figuring out who, who do I vote for. Um, he probably wouldn't vote, right? Let's just be honest. Samson probably wouldn't make it to the polls. Um, now, people in the church behave similarly because they're imbibing that ethos of doing what is right in your own eyes. I've had this experience multiple times where I'm talking to someone who wants to get a divorce, and, it, and there's not adultery or abandonment or abuse. They're just miserable. And they're like, they say things to me like, I feel like God is telling me that I should get a divorce. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? Right? It objectively is saying here in Scripture, no, you don't get a divorce, even if you're miserable. Right? We trust in the gospel. We keep moving forward. Right? But, but, it, but it's a, I feel it so strongly that I've objectively convinced myself that somehow God is saying something that is actually against His Word. Or 
more acceptable kinds of things. Christians who give very little in terms of financial resources to their church, who rarely pray or read their Bibles, who care very little about justice for the vulnerable. What are they, why are they doing that? Because it feels good to them to be selfish. It feels good. It feels this is the right direction. Or we do these little justifications in our mind and say, well, well, right now I can't do these things, but I will. I will next year. I will when I get out of college. I will when I get a, a job. I will when, I, when my kids grow up and I, and, I, and I can have some time when I'm not like up all night. Like, like there's all these things we do in our mind to say, this is why I'm doing this thing that I know is against God's word, but I'm objectively justifying it, right, in here somehow because it's what it feels, right? Uh, we're all tugged into this. I've used this phrase, a therapeutic deism. We, we relate to God as if His main job is just make me feel good. Just make me feel better. And that, of course, is not His job. Like, yes, He comforts, He encourages, but, but He's shaping us. He's forming us, not into the image of our own making, but into His image. We're to be His image bearers, not just come up with stuff in our own thoughts and feelings and just bleh. Like, we're to figure out, how do I bear the image of God? the person of God, ultimately in Christ. Now, this is pretty depressing, right? Israel and us kind of going down the tubes here, doing what's right in our own eyes, yet there's hope contained in the passage. Look at chapter, uh, verse 4. It says, his, mother, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And at the time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. God's at work. Even though it looks like total chaos, God is secretly, He's sovereignly working in the midst of all that hopelessness. The story of Samson illustrates that mysterious interaction between the choices made by humans, many, many times which are horrific, and the ongoing sovereign good plan of God that He's always moving forward. I mean, if we were to look at this story without the narrator's insertion of the reality that God's involved, we would just think, God, you've left. Like, you've left Israel. They've just been left to their own devices. But the narrator lets us know, no, he's very active. He's very much involved, and his spirit is working in Samson. Now, we knew this back from Judges 13. Judges 13, 5, the angels given this announcement to Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Did that happen? It did. Old lady with a dead womb has a baby. Right? No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's not, we hope this is going to happen, if some things work out, if I can sort of like you know, move the chess pieces around and the humans will do what they're supposed to do, then maybe, sort of, we'll get the Philistines. No! He's like, I'm going to do it! When you see God's wills and His shalls, like, pay attention to it. He's, he's not joking. We can know with 100% assurance when He says, I will do this, I shall do this, He's serious. And He's proven it all throughout the Scriptures, right? Starting with, let there be light. Woo, there's light. Like, he, he, he's 100%. He's not like us, right? We, we say, I'm going to do this. Then we get sick and have to call and say, sorry, I can't do it. God doesn't ever call in and say, oh, sorry, 
It's 100% assurance that God will fulfill his word. And the, the writer of Judges, just, just subtly kind of putting this in there, like, he, well, God's at work. God's at work. Now, story continues. Samson went down, verse 5, with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. That had to be terrifying. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. There it is again, right, that, that refrain. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, Samson's story just continues to move forward with bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, right? First he's saying, I want this Philistine woman, then he doesn't honor and obey his parents, and he goes back to the Philistines to, to check again if she's right, and he's like, yeah, yeah, she's right. She is right in my eyes. In the midst of that, he gets attacked by a lion, and he gets this supernatural Holy Spirit adrenaline rush in that moment, and he rips this lion apart with his bare hands. Now, uh, after that, he, he scoops this honey out of the carcass. This is a, sort of like a weird story, like what's going on? And so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is he's supposed to have taken a Nazarite vow from conception on, right? And part of the, the Nazarite vow is you don't drink alcohol, you don't touch dead stuff, and you don't cut your hair. Those are his three. And here he is touching dead stuff, right? The lion. And he takes this contaminated honey out, he eats it. Now, I think we don't appreciate honey in the ancient world. It's the sweetest thing they got. They don't have processed sugar. They don't have corn syrup. They're better off that they don't have that. But honey is like the sweetest thing. So it'd be like you seeing, you know, I don't know what, whatever your sweet tooth thing is, like a chocolate bar or something. You're just like, oh, I got to have that. And so he, he eats this. And so that breaks that uh, promise to not touch dead stuff. And then he hands it off to his parents who are also made unclean unbeknownst to them, because they also have touched an unclean, dead carcass. But in the midst of all those bad decisions, God's at work, right? The, the writer's saying that the Spirit rushed upon him, that God is empowering Samson, right? He, it seems like the, the, the lion attacked him, but when that happens, the Spirit shows up and gives him power. And it's a glimpse of Samson's gifting, it's a glimpse of his gifting. Now, he, I'm sure he spent some time in the weight room. I'm sure he's buff. You know, he's strong. But he's never seen this kind of power coursing through his body. And when he gets this little glimpse, um, it's hard to know what he thinks because he doesn't really think, right? He doesn't really reflect. It's not like he stops and worships God, says, thank you, God, for saving me from a roaring lion that just took me, tried to take me out. Uh, he just sort of files it away and is thinking, man, I could pull that out you know, in a moment's notice, which he does in the, the, the last half of chapter 14. This is a very different tact than Gideon, right? If you were with us for the Gideon story, Gideon is like the weakest guy in his family, the weakest clan, and God uses him in this really miraculous, supernatural way uh, to bring victory to Israel. Samson is like having a superhero on your team, right? You, you've seen... 
Uh, if you've seen superhero movies, there's always this scene, all hope is lost, conventional weapons are ineffective against the threat, and then Black Panther shows up, or the Iron Man shows up, or Wonder Woman shows up, right, and just takes them all out. And this is the kind of power that Samson has. He doesn't need an army. He is an army, right? He really is an army of one. <laughs> like, he shows up. He, he, he can get rid of whatever enemies are in the neighborhood. Now, he... In, in the next few verses, we see him expressing another desire, and that's the desire of greed, right? He wants to get, get rich quick. And so, verse 10, father went down to the woman. Samson prepared a feast. The Hebrew there is literally a drinking feast. So, he's breaking number two of his Nazarite vow already. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him, and Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So Samson, Samson's looking at a, an opportunity here to get rich quick, right? He's like, I'm going to get 30 pairs of underwear and 30 pairs of clothing, right? That linen, that whole linen thing, that's like ancient world underwear. And I think he's thinking those 30 guys are going to be stripping down and giving him their clothing, right? Like they like hand them over. Now, I don't know why you want used underwear, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so he's going to do this wager, right? And it seems pretty simple. Like, if they can't get the riddle, then he gets these new clothing. If they can get the riddle, then he's got to figure out how to give them new clothing. But it's not simple. It's really complicated. It's really complicated. So on the fourth day, verse 15, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. I don't know why she thought he really loved me. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Anyway, you have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not told my father nor my mother and I shall tell you. And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle of her, to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. What a piece of work, right? This, 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 this Samson. So he thinks he's clever. He comes up with this riddle. Honestly, the riddle is unsolvable. I mean, think about it. He doesn't have the sophistication to come up with a riddle. Like a riddle has to have some kind of play on words inside of it that you can, the clues are in the riddle, right? Like, like what's black and white and red all over? A newspaper. Anyway, you go home and think about that. It's, it's contained in there, right? There's no way to solve this. This is like Bilbo saying to Gollum, what's in my pocket? You know, it's just, I, I don't know. Um, but regardless of whether or not it's unsolvable, uh, and they were probably all, all drunk when he made it. Anyway, uh, 
But in order for a wager to work, there has to be good faith on both sides, right? You have to have, to have enough integrity that you know that, that each of you is going to follow through on the wager if you lose. The Philistines are willing to do absolutely anything to win, including threaten to burn Samson's new wife and her family. Uh, Samson's new wife is willing to do whatever she's got to do, right? And I, I have most compassion for her. Here she's in a, an arranged marriage with Meathead, and she's being threatened that her, she and her family can be burned alive. I mean, that, that, that's, that's not... Uh, it's not a good place to be. So she's in, in, in a horrific kind of a situation. But she is willing to lie to him, manipulate him. Um, and, and then Samson, of course, we're going to see what he's going to do. But everybody's basically doing what's right in their own eyes. They're, they're, whatever feels like the right thing to do at the moment, you just do it. You don't think about God. You don't think about His Word. You don't think about what's right. You don't think about what's wrong. You, you're just navigating through life according to what you think and what you feel. And look what happens. 19, verse 19, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Now imagine this moment. Philistines guess the riddle. Samson decides to take vengeance and make them pay, and he goes around in Philistine country, and he kills 30 people. And then he shows up back where the guys are, and he's like, okay, I got your clothes. This came from your cousin, who's now dead. This came from your dad. This came from your child. So enjoy, right? It's a real brutal kind of a thing that he does. And he, he, he knows he can pull that off because they're scared of him. He's one bad dude. And so he brings those 30 close to them and gives it to them. And it's like he doesn't even know or care that there's a Ten Commandment that says don't murder. Right? That's one of the big ten. Like if he knew anything in the Hebrew Scripture, you would think. He would know you don't murder. You don't murder. But he's breaking laws left and right, including Ten Commandments. Why? He's doing things that are right in his own eyes. But... We see the Spirit involved in this. It's incredibly mysterious how this is working, that God is not only working in spite of and around human sin, sometimes, somehow He's working through the sin. Now, that doesn't mean go sin so that God can really you know, make a big difference in the world. But it does let us know that no human sinfulness is ever going to derail the sovereign plan of God. And Samson, the Philistines, everybody just doing what's right in their own eyes. And yet, in the midst of that, the Spirit of God is carrying out the redemptive plan of God. So what is God doing? Now, I, I certainly don't know all of what God's doing, but here's some things that we, we I think, know for sure that He's doing, right? And we think about, you know, from 100 feet, 1,000 feet, 5,000 feet, 10,000 feet. So at 100 feet, He's showing Samson His gifts. In these, in these experiences... He's showing Samson that he has supernatural physical strength that can make him one bad dude on the battlefield for God. You go up a thousand feet, we know he's, he's stirring up relations between Israel and the Philistines. So even though Israel's not crying out for deliverer, they're not hoping to be out from under Philistine oppression, God's like, we're going to get you out from under that Philistine oppression. 
and we're going to stir this pot until you actually go against the Philistines. And it will take King David to finish the job, but it is the beginning, just, just as, as what is said by the angel in Judges 13, the beginning of freeing Israel from the Philistines. We go 5,000 feet, we see, wow, God, you're establishing a nation, the nation of Israel, and out of that nation, you're going to call a true and better deliverer, and that's going to be Jesus. And he's going he's to save Israel from their worst enemies, right? Sin, death, hell. That's what the true and better deliverer is going to save them from. You go out 10,000 feet and you're like, whoa, this is for the, the nations. God, God is calling the nations. He's, he's, he's delivering the nations from sin and death and hell and gathering them into a worshiping community that's not just in this life, but it's in the life to come. And so you, you have to do that when you're in the Bible. You zoom in, you zoom out, right? That, that is extremely, extremely helpful. Uh, and, and as you learn that skill of zooming in and, and zooming out, there's, there's a couple of points that are going to continually come out of that. And one is that God is always working in all things at all times. He is. He's working in all things at all times, even when you don't see it. On the surface, looks like human beings are just doing what human beings want to do. And, you, and it looks like God's not involved. He's involved. He's underneath. He's doing something. He's sovereignly working out His good purposes in the midst of all the craziness. And that can give us hope. And it can also keep us in the game, down on the ground, right? Even though we can't see Him working, right? What it should not do is cause you to to sit on the bench and say, well, God's sovereign and He's going to take care of it anyway, so I'm tapping out. No, it it should cause you to get back in the game, right? And, and, And engage, in giving the gospel, both in the way you demonstrate it and the way you proclaim it to others, because you know God's sovereignly working a plan forward, either on your, your college campus, or in your community, in this valley, in our country, in the world, right? As you zoom in, zoom out, God's at work. So it should give you hope to re-engage in, in whatever is before you. Number two... That God is using His sovereignty, not just in a big picture way, but in a little picture way of saving Samson's like you and me. He's saving Samson's like you and me. This is, this is the only way we could ever be saved from this predicament of doing what's right in our own eyes. We can't deliver ourselves from that. I mean, we think we can. Like we think we can think our way out of doing what's right in our own eyes. We cannot. This is the predicament of human beings. Everything is at least tainted and touched by sin, even our thinking and our emotions. So we we need a deliverer. We need to be delivered by Jesus to forgive us of our sins, fill us with His Holy Spirit, and at least get us on the journey of having our minds transformed from doing what's right in our own eyes to doing what's right in God's eyes. Now, this is a process. This is a process. It's not something that... He just hands you when you become a Christian. It's like, okay, boom, you, 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 your mind is working perfectly now. Your emotions is perfect. That day is coming, right, in the life to come, but that's not this day. But we do enter into a process whereby our minds are being renewed with the objective Word of God that's coming from out here into here. It's not just what's going on in here. You with me? So, for instance, I, I mean, there's so many New Testament places I could have gone for this, but, but this is one that... I, I was reading this week, so it was on my mind. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, describes what life is like with, 
when you're living uh, according to what's right in your own eyes. For people will be lovers of self, that's really at the core, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, is that not Samson? I mean, woo. But it's also us. Now, you're probably thinking, but I'm not that one, and I'm not that one, and I'm not that one, so I'm not that bad, right? But that's not really the point, right? The, the point is Paul's just throwing out this list to go, look, whether you're on this side or this side, like, like we're all doing this. We're all living according to what's right in our own eyes. And what will rescue us from that? Later on in the same chapter, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, but for, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So he lets Timothy know, like, Timothy, here's how you don't live life according to what's right in your own eyes. Scripture. Scripture, right? And you're not just learning it but you're actually applying it. And you see this little, little cycle here where it says teaching. That's just the actual information, so you've got to get that in your mind. For reproof, that, that may be a word we might use as, as a rebuke, right? It, it's, it's, it's pointing out in our life, this thinking is not uh, of God, or this action is not of God, or this attitude is not of God. It rebukes us. It reproves us. But then it doesn't stop there, right? It's for correction. It teaches us how to repent and to get out of those actions and attitudes and, and thoughts. But not only that, it trains us in righteousness. So now it gives us a whole other way of thinking and acting that replaces the old way. It's beautiful. And that's a process. That's an ongoing process. And so this is partly why it's so important that we have this ongoing intake of God's Word, both as individuals and in community. If you just do this as an individual, you'll, you'll go down in some right-in-your-own-eyes kinds of interpretations that, that are not going to be helpful. And so you need community, right? So you can wrestle with those things and talk about those things and tie those things into 2,000 years of biblical interpretation, right? But that objective truth that's in Scripture is being used by God to, what Paul says, renew your minds, right? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so there's objective truth that by God's grace changes what's in here. And it causes us to be able to think and act according to what's right in God's eyes. We, 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 the thing that we most see in the Scriptures is not a list of what's do and not to do, right? Although we need that and it's helpful, but what we see as the centerpiece of the Scripture is that it reveals Jesus. It reveals Jesus. It reveals this redemptive plan that God had from Genesis through Revelation and that the crux Right, of that plan is Jesus. The Jesus who, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who's coming back. That, that is what's at the center. And so as we go to that scripture and renew our minds, this is what should be coming to the forefront each, each time. 
This is also what we're reminded of when we come to the sacrament, right? When we come to communion. It's a, it's a regular reminder of the center of our faith, of Jesus. And it's also this moment where if you zoom down into what it's commemorating, right? Think about what it's commemorating. Jesus takes bread. He's with His disciples. One's going to betray Him. One's going to deny Him. And He breaks it and gives it to them. He says, this is my body. It's, it's going to be broken. And so if you're down there looking at the cross from about five feet, all you can see are Romans and Jews condemning to death the divine Son of God. And you think, God, where are you in that? How could you let humans do what's right in their own eyes to the point where that is being carried out? But then we come up to about 100 feet and then we realize he's dying for sinners. He's dying to execute a plan that God had all along, even in the book of Judges. And we hear that in what Jesus says when he takes the cup and he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know that, yes, this horrific thing's going to happen the next day and he's going to be crucified on the cross. But, but there's, there's hope that what's happening there is sin is being forgiven. Grace for forgiveness is being uh, given at the cross and grace for ongoing transformation of human beings once they come to faith in Christ. We zoom up a little, little further. We see he, he, he's, he's saving a community of people, not just individuals. When he uses that covenant language, he's saying, I, I'm, I'm forming a covenant community. And a, a, as you zoom out, you realize, wow, this is not just saving Israel and making a covenant community out of Israel. It's saving people from the nations. And then you zoom out a little further and you realize, wow, this is not just about this life. This is for the life to come. And, and you realize, wow, this is the story that God is, is writing by His sovereign grace. And so you need, you need this, this skill of zooming in and zooming out because you need that on Monday morning too. Because on Monday morning, you're not feeling like God is everywhere working all the time. And you're just thinking, I'm, just, I'm tired or I'm discouraged or I'm mad or I don't want to go to work or I've got finals ahead or, you know, whatever the thing is. And what you need to do is remember what, what this supper and what this scripture points you to and that this, that's the sovereign work of God in Christ and that He is at work. He's at work. He is sovereignly, if you're a Christian, He sovereignly saved you. He sovereignly brought you into relationship with Him. He sovereignly making you like Him in a process kind of way, over and over and over through Scripture, through all these experiences. He's at work, even if you don't feel it, even if it seems like He's left the building. He's sovereignly at work. Take hope in that. Take hope in that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that You are good and wise and you're all-powerful. You rule. You reign. There's not one human being that has any ultimate power outside of your sovereign ways, Lord. And we confess, we don't understand the mystery of all that. How it is you run the universe. And, uh, but we are so grateful that you do. You're, you're not just some God who set it in motion and, and tapped out, but you are intimately involved. You're sustaining the very atoms in our body right now. We wouldn't even be able to hold ourselves together if it wasn't for your grace and your grace giving us breath in our lungs and 
food on our tables or what, what all these things, God. We, we just we receive these as something that out of your sovereignty that, that this church was brought about 20 years ago. God, that was a sovereign thing that you did, Lord. The things that you continue to want to do on these campuses and in our communities, in, in our country, in, in this world. Lord, we, we trust that you are sovereign and you are good. And so help us, Lord, as, as we remember that the greatest thing you ever did via your sovereignty, which was to send your son to die on the cross for our sin. Thank you. Thank you for using your absolute power and goodness to execute that plan. And that plan in its ongoing form, in our church, in this world, in the life to come. God, we take great hope in that this morning. We trust that you are at work. It would help those that have maybe lost the sense that God is at work. God, help, help them to see that you are indeed at work, no matter what. And we just ask you to bless this time as we worship you, as we take this bread and cup of, of remembrance. Draw near to us, Lord. We need you. We need to be reminded that your Holy Spirit's at work in, through, around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.